Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, the Beneficent, the Merciful. I am Ubaidullah Evans, and today I'm joined by Professor Muhammad Fadl and Professor Lawrence Janouzi. And this is the Renovatio Podcast. And today, I think we've prepared a very interesting conversation. But before engaging the topic, I think it best to introduce my collaborators. I have with me Professor Muhammad Fadl, who is a professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. He is the former Canada Research Chair for the Law and Economics of Islamic Law. His research areas include business corporations, economic analysis of law, Islamic law, and political philosophy and theory. He received his PhD from the University of Chicago and his JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. And I also have with me Professor Lawrence Genuzzi. Professor Genuzzi is a scholar of history, whose primary research areas include medieval theology, ecclesiology, and political theory, English and the Italian church, and intellectual history. His secondary research areas are comparative church history and the Reformation in late medieval Europe, Tudor and Stuart England, and colonial America. At Zaytuna College, he has taught constitutional law. So... I would first like to welcome both of you to the podcast. And in preparing for this conversation about equality, the first thing that jumped out to me, and Dr. Father, I would like you to speak to this first, is that I, as an older millennial, tend to think about equality as this obvious sine qua non of justice. Like you can't have justice without equality. And to me, it would appear that there has never been a group of people or a civilization that did not understand equality in that way. Whereas in a recent article that you wrote, Dr. Fuller, you talked about equality within the framework of Islamic law being something that developed along lines that were different than you know, the lines equality developed along in, in Western legal theory uh, and constitutionalism and statecraft. And you also kind of contextualized equality. Uh, can you speak to that somewhat? Uh, sure. Assalamu Um Pleasure to be here with everybody. What I was, in, in my essay, I was talking about anti-domination and its relationship to equality. So anti-domination is a, is a, is a very well-known strand of Western political theory. It's very closely connected with the idea of republicanism. And in fact, it has a really quite well-established status in democratic theory as a, as a very important interpretation of democracy. In some ways, it has uh, it exists in tension with certain liberal conceptions of democracy, and we can talk about that later on. But you shouldn't really think of anti-domination as an alternative to equality. It's a different interpretation of equality because what it seeks to assure or what it seeks to secure is the conditions in which people get to enjoy substantive equal freedom as opposed to, let's say, formal equal freedom. And so the, the, the intuition behind anti-domination as a political value is that in many situations, not all, but most of the time, in fact, formal equality is a perfectly good way of making sure that one person does not arbitrarily dominate another person. But there are many situations where formal equality fails to secure anti-domination. 
So, you know, we have the cliche that the law in its majesty prohibits both the prince and the pauper from sleeping under the bridge at night. So that's the case of a, a formally equal law, right? But it doesn't, it actually furthers a regime of domination as opposed to erasing domination, right? So what I was trying to suggest in the essay is that if one takes a long view of Islamic ethics, morality, and law, you can identify a very, very strong egalitarian impulse from the very beginning. No doubt about that. No doubt about that at all. But when you start looking at formal positive law, you will see that Islamic law makes lots of distinctions based on things like gender, for example, or religion, that in modern conceptions violate the principle of egalitarianism. And so this can create a dilemma for a modern Muslim, someone who is committed to Islam as a religion and also committed to a certain kind of egalitarian politics. And this can lead sometimes to a distortion in understanding of Islam, I think. So sometimes you see people who will try to interpret Islam in a way to make it conform with certain egalitarian ideals, even if it goes against the plain sense of revelation. And so what I want to try to say is, no, the best way to understand these things is to take a historical approach, understand the Quran and the prophetic teachings as being focused primarily on anti-domination, political value, and emphasizing equality as a legal, as a moral value, but not necessarily legislating formal equality in every situation. Rather, legislation is focused on ameliorating conditions of domination, right? And so then that provides a basis for modern Muslims, right, to continually update their own practical law in an effort to remove arbitrary relations of domination, right? So what I would say is that Muslims make a mistake in thinking about the rules of revelation as a ceiling as opposed to a floor, if you understand the metaphor, right? Because the, the object of Quranic legislation and prophetic legislation is always to ameliorate concrete conditions of domination, right? So you never see the Quran interfering in a, in a, in a pro-domination way, right? It always interferes in a way to reduce the domination of one person over another person. And so um, I think that's the way to reconcile modern intuitions about egalitarianism with historical relations of hierarchy, right? So that, that was the basic argument of the of the of the paper. But I don't want to I don't want listeners to think that anti-domination is somehow an alternative to equality. It's a deeper kind of equality, really, because it's more concerned about you know concrete relationships and what does it mean for a person to be able to act freely. From a, from a realistic perspective as opposed to a simply formalistic perspective. When you were talking about, you know, non-domination and the difference between, or non-domination being a fuller, in some cases, in some instances, expression of equality, I was thinking about moving violations, right? The, 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 the fine is $100, no matter who breaks the law. But that $100, right. what that means in the life of a poor person is entirely different than what that means in the life of someone wealthy. 
Of course, of course. And as you may know, as you may know, in the practice of American law, fines hit poor people in a particularly devastating mm -hmm. way. It actually results in many people being imprisoned just because they can't pay fines. Yes, yes. This is an excellent point. And this is also a good segue. You know, Dr. Januzzi, as you were listening to Dr. Fuller, was there anything that struck a chord with you, anything that resonated with you from maybe the Anglo-American legal tradition in terms of, you know, equality? Because some people now, when we talk about, you know, America's commitment to formal equality, they regard that almost as farcical, right? We've, we've had Jim and Jane Crow in this country. We've had, you know, enslavement. We've had pogroms against indigenous folks, etc. But I was actually surprised to learn that early American jurists and constitutionalists were very, very committed to equality. Were they not? I believe they were. Of course, that allows room for the question of what did they mean by it and did they mean it? But yes, I think they were. And, and you asked if anything that uh, Dr. Fadel said uh, struck a chord. And it's like many, many chords. I was especially struck by the eloquent explanation of the current uh, rhetoric is away from the, the word equality in favor of the word equity. And I think that that's, that sums up what Dr. Fadel is saying about uh, substantive equality rather than just formal equality. And of course, this, this brings us inevitably right back to the famous words of Thomas Jefferson, the slaveholder, who said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Did he mean that? And what did he mean by it? And what I wanted to sort of explore was a little bit was this sort of historical hierarchical view that Dr. Fadel mentioned, that there's always an element of us and them in ideas of equality. Very often historically, and the classical Athenian democracy uh, is a terrific example of that, that they were, they were very committed to equality and egalitarianism within the Athenian community. Equality for us, for me, but not for thee. While, while the Athenians were, for example, building an empire, they, they did not consider those outside the Athenian political community to be equals in any sense. And in fact, you know, with the concept of what they called barbarians, non-Greek speakers, they not only were not equal, they were almost clearly subhuman. And I think that something like that is going on at the founding of the country, too. I was at Colonial Williamsburg a few years ago, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been there. But uh, they have wonderful educational programs, not only, you know, from the House of Burgesses, and those sorts of things, but they actually run plantations so that people that go there can see and have an insight into the lives of people, an enslaved population on a plantation. And one of the things that, that resonated very well was, well, what, what's Jefferson and all these people doing when they're talking about uh, equality and they're refusing to be slaves? What do they know about being slaves? And so, so the question is, well, was Jefferson an idiot? Was he a liar? Was he purely a hypocrite? Or, you know, maybe, maybe all of the above to a certain extent. But I think a lot of it goes, goes back to he's thinking, I believe, the founders were thinking, I believe, of equality in the sense that equality of the people who are in our political community needs to be formally preserved. And, of course, what he meant by that was um, white landowning males. Those, those were the constituents of, of the political community as he was thinking, I believe. 
now, can he be accused of hypocrisy? Probably. Can the can the country that purports to be based on that also be accused of hypocrisy? Quite possibly. It's probably above my pay scale to say, but that's what uh, comes to mind when we talk about substantive as opposed to to formalistic equality. When one looks at, well, the Constitution, for example, there are all kinds of um, ways in which people are are clearly not being viewed as fully equal in the political community. And it's not all related to slavery, but it's, but it's market. They were clearly not interested in, uh, contrary to what we currently think of, equality of results. It probably never occurred to them to, to have even considered equality of results. Of course, the, the rich we will always have with us, just like the poor we will always have with us, they, they would have considered. And there are certain people who uh, are rulers, certain people who are not. I think there's a, a really interesting connection, if I, if, I, if I may say so, with something that Dr. Fothel wrote about the struggle for interpersonal or social equality is something that developed in the shadow of the struggle for political equality. Right. Dr. Fothel, I believe you termed it this this idea of why not me. So a lot of those civil rights movements and the end of apartheid in South Africa and, you know, other movements, uh, feminism, the development of feminism, uh, other movements that stressed and emphasized social equality came as a result of, you know, a discourse that prioritized uh, political uh, equality. Maybe you could speak to some of that development. Yeah, I think the argument sort of goes as follows, is that the initial impulse for Republican government back in the 18th century in the Enlightenment was that it was arbitrary to allow a king, a monarch, to interfere in the freedom of you know, free males, right? I mean, why should the king of France be able to rule by decree or or whatever, that a free person should have a voice in determining the rules that regulate his life, right? So that's the basic core idea of republicanism, self-government, that a free person should only be subject to the rules that he consents to, okay? So once that principle becomes enshrined as a matter of constitutional law, then it's one small step for women to say, well, why am I subject to the arbitrary will of my husband or the arbitrary will of my, my father or the arbitrary will of my brother? Shouldn't I also only be subject to rules that I have consented to, right? So what starts off as a movement to secure the political rights of the free male, right, obviously then can't be cabined because there's a moral dimension to the argument that's very hard to resist. So if Thomas Jefferson is morally entitled to say to the British king, I should have a voice in the, in the laws that govern me, then Martha Jefferson should say to Thomas, I should have a voice in the laws that, that regulate you and me. And likewise, the slaves on the plantation would say, well, I should have a voice in the laws that regulate the relationship between you and me, right? So the notion that legitimate law comes from the consent of the governed is a radical notion. And in the 18th century, 
I don't think people quite understood how radical it was, right? You can't, once you accept it, you can't cabinet to simply the, 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 the free citizenry of the time that exists at the time and the ruler at the time. It's going to expand until it's universal because it would be morally arbitrary to deny women the same rights as men. It would be morally arbitrary to deny it to the enslaved because the enslaved are humans, right? And this is why I think, which is, which is interesting, when, the, when slavery exists in the context of Republican government, the only way you can justify it is by declaring slaves to be somehow inferior. And this was kind of a unique feature to American slavery, that it wasn't simply that being a slave was an unfortunate thing, it was tragic, it was bad. This was the proper condition for slaves, that Africans were suited to be slaves. They should be slaves. It was good for them to be slaves. And in fact, in, 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 the, in the century between the revolution and the Civil War, it became more and more difficult to free slaves. In many Southern states, it was prohibited to free slaves. And Africans could be re-enslaved. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. The famous Dred Scott case. Yeah. And so, in, you know, in Islamic law, slavery existed. Islam did not did not abolished slavery, but it encouraged emancipation. And upon emancipation, the, the former slave was the same as any other free person, right? And slavery was a one-way, emancipation was a one-way elevator. You could not go back down, right? So uh, nobody, could be, nobody could be enslaved once they were in Muslim territory, right? regardless of religion or race or anything like that. So slavery was used as a, viewed as a kind of legal disability that the law sought to first ameliorate and second remove. And then once removed, it was a permanent, it was permanently removed. It could never be restored because there was no essential difference between a slave and a human being. It was just the accident of, of capture on the battlefield at some point in time. You know, in one place, you know, Dr. Januzzi, you wrote that Patrick Henry did speak of America's slavery to England being illegitimate. As abolitionist thought began to take root, you know, in America, did they make use of the same conceptions of freedom or as women's suffrage began to, you know, gain momentum in America, were similar notions of equality and freedom being invoked? They absolutely did. And uh, I think most of the abolitionist impetus in the antebellum America uh, stemmed from a certain kind of Protestant theology that, that I think amplifies what Dr. Fadel say, is saying uh, quite nicely. It's a nice, a nice uh, uh, example because uh, I've seen in, in my research that the abolitionists were not necessarily only focusing on uh, black slavery. On the contrary, they tended to be involved in uh, women's emancipation movements, temperance movements, uh, even anti-smoking movements, uh, movements to protect the Native Americans from encroachment. And I believe that those all stem from the, the Christian view of slavery, of course, is slightly different than what Dr. Fadel presented about the Islamic view. But there's, there's some really marked similarities. I'm kind of really interested to, to hear more about this. I mean, going going back to the beginning, not to not to uh, go back to the beginning, beginning, but there are certain proof texts in Saint Paul in the Christian Scripture 
that have taken on different interpretations in in the last couple of generations. As you you may be aware, uh, St. Paul at one point suggested that slaves be obedient to their masters. And in another point, he says that wives should be obedient to their husbands. And I, I bring those two up together because they both suggest that the questioning of hierarchical societies and slavery specifically once it's admitted, can be taken to eliminate all forms of natural authority of humans over other humans, uh, something we wouldn't have the kind of trouble with today that, that they would have in the first century, perhaps. But uh, St. Paul also said that in Jesus, there, there is no such thing as Jew or Greek, slave or free, man or woman. And so other factions today are using that, interpreting that as meaning that you know all these things are simply roles that have no objective reality, and so uh, they they don't truly exist. And Christian theology, I think, has always, or at least usually, noted that all of those prescriptions, both both the ones that suggest subservience and the ones that subject su- suggest independence, are all in the context of all Christians are being are one in the Lord. And it reflects the idea that all people are children of God and equal. And, and this, again, goes back to something that F- Dr. Fadel mentioned, are equal in the sense of all being equal children's, children of God. But that does not mean that social hierarchy is something to be dispensed with. I mean, you know, I studied uh, Islamic law, you know, formerly in Egypt, and I never encountered, you know, this concept that he addressed in his article, this ismatul mu'athima. And this idea of moral inviolability and legal inviolability, that as human beings, we are all essentially equal in our humanity. But in terms of our legal inviolability, that differs according to maybe our station in life. And Islamic scholars um, you know, upon my reading of his article, they developed some very interesting mechanisms of dealing with that ismatul muqawwimah, that, that fact that our legal inviolability differs according to our social station. Uh, maybe you can speak to some of that, Dr. Fadl. Sure. Well, this is a particularly Hanafi doctrine in the sense that the Hanafis theorized this expressly. But I would argue that the same doctrine is implicitly found in many other schools of law uh, in the Sunni in, in, in Sunni thought. But the basic idea is as follows: is that the essential feature that gives human beings their inviolability is that God created them and that God will hold them accountable for their actions. And so that when I know that God will hold me accountable for my acts of aggression against my fellow man that that in of itself should be sufficient to deter me from doing, from violating anybody else's property or life or station, right? Knowing that God will hold me accountable for that. So that, that, that's the, the source of our spiritual inviolability. And that's, that's what makes us distinctively human. But insofar as we're human beings, we also have a physical corporeal dimension, right? We're bodies, and as bodies... We are vulnerable to attack, to damage. We need food. We need sex. We need all these other sorts of things because we're also bodies, right? And so you have to have a legal system that secures these fundamental interests insofar as we are bodies, 
right? And so when the law provides compensation to human beings when they're assaulted, it's treating them as a thing, right? Not as a spiritual being, right? And so, so the logic of the law inherently is to turn human beings, transform them from spiritual essences into physical things. Now, the interesting thing about that is that according to the Hanafis, and this is unique in Hanafi doctrine, is that insofar as we are bodies, all human beings are equal because we're all vulnerable to physical attack. We're all, we all need food. We all need water, right? We all need shelter, right? So what they say is that, pardon? We all bleed red, right, so to speak. said, we all die. Yes. So in order to secure these physical interests, we need, a, we need a state with a legal system, right? And in that legal system, because we're all equally thingy, right, the law has to treat us all the same. So different human beings might enjoy different rights by virtue of the fact they live in different states. So the Islamic polity guarantees a certain menu of rights and obligations, you know, the Byzantines might guarantee another menu, right? But the important point, at least from the Hanifi perspective, is that since everyone within a polity is equally corporeal, so to speak, the law should treat them all the same. Now, they will justify hierarchy on functional grounds, right? So they will say, yes, all equals, equality requires equal treatment, but only if those things are equally situated, right? So what they will say is that men and women are different. That's why it's okay to distinguish between men and women because they're not the same. They're apples and oranges. In our view, I mean, I'm saying when I say our, I'm talking about moderns, the post-World War II view general is that, well, no, actually men and women aren't so different that 99.9% .9 of the time they're actually the same that the, the kinds of virtues and excellences and potentialities that men can achieve, women can achieve too. So it's arbitrary to prohibit women from attaining the education that would allow them to achieve all the things that men have achieved, right? Now, you know, for a, a 10th century or 11th century Muslim jurist, the idea that women could be could be as excellent and as virtuosos in all these fields of learning as men would have struck them as absurd. So from their view, there's no problem of equality by treating men one way and women in a different way because they view them, even though religiously, they both have dignity and status in front of God, their social functions are completely dissimilar, right? And that's kind of what sort of modernity has totally undermined is that we can no longer see this idea of men and women being completely dissimilar. And so any kind of legal regime that tries to say, you know, women can only do this, men can only do that, that strikes us as arbitrary, right? And that's where the tension arises between religion and sort of secular legislation. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dr. Januzzi, I mean, as I'm listening to Dr. Fadl, I'm thinking, yes, we as moderns, do regard a lot of those distinctions as, as arbitrary, and some of them, in fact, violate 
our sensibilities. But one difference that I've seen modern jurists always acknowledge is power, especially in issues of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, you know, uh, this person was the employer. This person was the employee. Uh, there, there's a potential there for coercion. And I think this dovetails beautifully with Dr. Fulda's kind of central point in his article of non-domination. Every time I say that, I want to say non-denomination, right, of, of, of non-domination. But um, in that legal tradition, how are issues of power seen as intersecting with, with this fundamental egalitarianism? Right. It's like we're supposed to be equal, but somehow that changes because he's the employer and she's the employee or vice versa. She's the employee uh, employer and he's the employee. That's always taken very seriously in terms of a substantive uh, differentiation between those two parties. I think that um, those kinds of laws that reflect the intention to remove those kinds of exercises of power in places like the workplace or elsewhere reflect the fact or reflect the recognition that to the extent that those laws are defensible, I think it's to a very great extent indeed, but to the extent that they're defensible, they try to eliminate that arbitrary exercise of power that has nothing to do with the intrinsic dignity of males and females as males and females. At the same time, Catholic theology insists that while males and females are equally children of God and have equal dignity and and would absolutely agree with things like equal rights to education, equal abilities to, to excel in a wide variety, every field of human endeavor that until now they've been excluded from, that does not mean that males and females are identical and the non-arbitrary ways. And that's expressed by the, what, what they call the doctrine of complementarity. That males and females not are not one is not superior to the other in any meaningful way, but they are designed by God to fit together for the good of the human race, and that is something that gets uh, Catholic theology in trouble these days, be- precisely because so many of those areas that we see as complementary. I don't want to use the word roles because roles suggests something that's taken on voluntarily, but complementary differences are precisely not arbitrary, but are in fact ordained by God for the good of the human race. And that we all, males and females, need to live in that spirit of mutual love and dignity with due regard to that complementarity. So the bottom line is we would we would we would not we would insist that not every difference between male and female represents an arbitrary exercise of power. I think that's perfectly consistent with what Muslims would say. The problem is how do you express that in a way that's not viewed as misogynistic or offensive to women? Now, I've tried to think about this, and I didn't talk about this in the paper, but I think this is where sort of the theory of maqasid, sharia, is very important, particularly the way Shatabi describes it. I, I hate to get sort of into the weeds of this, but the way Shatabi understands maqasid, so you have the law secures, divine law secures various ends three different ways. There's sort of fundamental ends, secondary ends, and tertiary ends. And the tertiary ends kind of represent the perfection of what starts off as the primary. 
But the point that he want that I think he makes fundamentally is that when you're securing the perfection of something, you don't eliminate the primary. And so, of course, we want women to flourish. Of course we do, because they're human beings. We want women to become Nobel Prize winners. We want them to go to the moon. We want them to do all these other things. But that doesn't mean that we can dispense with their capacity as you know, the literal reproducers of the species either, <laughs> right? So it's not that the, the primary function is dispensed with or transcended. And the same thing goes for men, right? There are certain like fundamental attributes that we have as men and women that can't be dispensed with just because they don't rep- they're, they're not a ceiling to what we can become, but they're not sort of optional. They're not like, you know, can go for manual or automatic transmission. I mean, the species must be reproduced, right? There's just, that's something indispensable. What the jurist would say, it's a maslaha daruriya. It's it's an essential end that the law must secure because God secu- desires to the, the propagation of the human species as such. And it would be an irrational law that permitted the species to commit, you know, to, to not continue in existence, right? Now, I sometimes I think, you know, when you read Plato, there are these sort of hypothetical situations where you get rid of the family and there's like, you know, group procreation and group raising of children without parents, without a nuclear family. People usually read that in an ironic way that Plato and other people suggest this to say, this is, imagine what a dystopia, dystopian situation would be where you had no actual mother and father to raise children, but they were just raised socially. Now, the interesting thing, I'll say interesting from like a neutral perspective, is that we are increasingly approaching the day where our technology would allow us to actually organize society's reproduction in a way that would dispense with natural parenting, right? And as I've said, that's always been viewed as a dystopia. So in science, in science fiction stories like Brave New World, that's a sign of the dystopia that people aren't being, you know, there aren't na- there's not a natural family anymore, right? But now suddenly we actually have the technological capability to fulfill that vision. And when you just have, when the only political value you have is egalitarianism, it's actually very hard to resist that because truth is the nuclear family does require a certain amount of specialization and division of labor that does disadvantage women in certain very important ways. And it's not clear to me that we can ever achieve perfect social equality within the context of the nuclear family. I mean, we can ameliorate it, Uh, We can make up for it. We can remedy it in many ways. But can we ever really get rid of it entirely? I'm skeptical. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get the sense that this is quickly becoming a perennial issue. This is, you know, the tension that we sense around, you know, that issue is not something specific, I think, even to religious folks. Uh, I, I think that, you know, similar arguments express themselves in thinking about wages, you know, women are taking more time away from work uh, for maternity leave, and maybe they are becoming 
disinterested in certain kinds of work with, you know, reproductive work and emotional work of caring for families. And so I'm interested in hearing from you, Professor Januzzi. I mean, I'm very familiar with the way, you know, Muslims and Muslim legists talk about these issues, but I'm very curious about the way that, you know, other legal scholars and other religious folks are thinking about equity and equality and the nuclear family and squaring that with contemporary notions of egalitarianism and fairness. I mean, is this even a conversation, you know, in, in, in other communities? Well, I, I was struck by Dr. Fadel's use of the word, uh, I think it was disadvantageous. Uh, women's roles inside the nuclear family can be a, a disadvantage to women. And I'm not prepared to quibble with that by any means, don't, don't get me wrong. But I think that that is a qualitative word that, is, that is, has been subject to change over the millennia. What exactly is an advantage and what isn't an advantage to men and women and the nuclear family, I think, is, is uh, not a fixed idea. But I, I do think that it's important to not have a reductionist approach to women's and men's roles in the family can be reduced to their biological function in creating children. At least the Catholic idea would not accept that the qualitative differences between women and men extend beyond their reproductive organs and that it extends into the to the rearing and education and and flourishing of the children in ways beyond just you know coming into the world and i think that's a source of a lot of mistrust about the current technological changes that that are indeed upon us i have read and i i'm under the i'm not a sociologist but i've i've uh, under the impression that the body of research is growing that suggests that the stable marriage relationships having been replaced by serial monogamy in at least in western civilization has a deleterious effect on the children that children flourish best when raised by not only two parents but a mother and a father again i i can't comment on that from as to whether i believe it or not but i am reading more and more of that and if that's the case then I think the suggestion that purely biological functions are of an advantage or disadvantage kind of missed the point. No, I think, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard this point discussed, but I've, I've heard it discussed a little differently, that if we're looking at advantage as that which confers worldly benefit, money, you know, certain kinds of worldly privileges and freedoms, that's one thing. But if we're looking at advantage as that which builds one spiritually, morally, that which uh, builds deep emotional connections and bonds with children and family, then it's very hard to speak of women as being disadvantaged, even in their traditional roles in, in, in families. Speaking of this, what, what advantage is, I mean, obviously that's a, a question from the rel, rel, relevant perspective. Um, when I talked about the, bio, the um, heterosexual family as disadvantaging women relatively, I'm speaking from a secular perspective, not a religious perspective. Of course, you know, from the religious perspective, you can say, well, you know, God's going to even out all the accounts in the end. So, I mean, from that perspective, there's really nothing to say because God's going to even everything out in the end. We can be convinced about that because we believe in God's perfect justice. So it's not a, it's not necessarily a helpful 
perspective and not trying to figure out what's the best way to organize the family today so it works best for both for everyone the 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 the, the husband the wife and the children obviously right and and here what i was trying to say is that i haven't seen any evidence that suggests that within the context of the nuclear family as we know it today that women are ever going to be compensated in this world for their sacrifices to make that work that doesn't place them at a relative disadvantage to the man from a secular perspective, right? And we see this in different markets, in different societies, almost everywhere, right? That the, the minute the woman begins reproductive labor, that that automatically results in her becoming less competitive or whatever you want to say in the in the marketplace right and so we can make that up to her by giving her more money giving her more resources or whatever but in some respects that just encourages her more to specialize in the household which some feminists object to right so i'm just pointing out i'm not i don't have any answers to this i'm just saying that if you if you are radically committed to gender egalitarianism you're going to find the nuclear family to be a problem, a serious problem. It's not clear that there's a solution to it. That's why I don't consider myself a radical gender egalitarian. I consider myself committed to the idea of non-domination and gender relations and in every possible way removing arbitrary barriers for women to excel. But at the same time, I believe that the nuclear family is an essential institution for social and moral reasons, and I'm not prepared to dispense with it. I'm willing to, to say publicly, I recognize that it's going to have a deleterious effect on women's social equality on the margins, and even more than the margins in some places. You know, the thing, the thing about your article, Dr. Falder, that really struck me, and I mean, it really, really struck me, was I actually, I never considered myself a radical gender egalitarian, but it was always very, very difficult for me to acknowledge hierarchies that were apparent. You know, I think I would, I would often pretend not to see them between the employer and the employee, between the husband and the wife, between the, the, the governed and uh, the governor. Uh, and what I got from this principle of non-domination is that early Muslim jurists, they would recognize certain hierarchies as this Pragmatically, this is necessary, but because we recognize that it could be subject, right? This relationship could be subject for certain kinds of abuse. We have to limit the scope of that arbitrary abuse to the extent possible. And this becomes, you know, proximate justice. This, this might be as humanly close as we can come to, to, to mitigating the potential harm of domination, arbitrary uses of power, abuses of power, and sometimes that's the best you can do. Absolutely. Like, for example, you know, I, I mentioned the employment contract. So in Islamic law, it's actually quite difficult to form a binding employment contract, very different than the, than the common law. So Muslim employment law did not have an idea of a bonded labor contract that you could, or excuse me, it was very difficult to have an enforceable employment contract. And so most employment agreements were at will, so the employee could always walk away. You could, it was very difficult for the employer to coerce performance. 
And the reason behind that was this view that there's such a great risk of domination in that relationship that we have to prevent that from happening. At the same time, the division of labor is crucial for flourishing of the human species. So you can't eliminate it entirely, right? So they said that there must be, there has as a necessity, social necessity requires that human beings be able to hire one another, right? But we recognize this as a site of potential domination. So we have to mitigate that risk, right? And the same thing in marriage. Marriage is, ne is necessary for the human species to continue, but it can't be an unregulated relationship. It has to be a relationship that's regulated by the law to secure the interests of both parties, right? Otherwise, you know, they're not equally vulnerable to domination. The, the sad reality is women are much more vulnerable to being dominated in the heterosexual marriage than the man. And so the law is going to turn, us to turn its attention to how to protect the woman from the risk of arbitrary domination. And I, want to, I want to give uh, Dr. Januzzi a chance to speak to something of contemporary relevance, because as I was reading Dr. Felder's article, and I was thinking about the difference between formal equality and, you know, principles of non-domination, I thought, you know, this actually sounds a lot like critical theory, that even in a context in which you have formal equality, like in America, discrimination is literally illegal. It is literally illegal. According to all of the extant laws of every state in our union, racism is illegal. Discrimination is illegal. But a critical legal apparatus that, that recognizes that in spite of its illegality, it still happens that's kind of what critical theory is, but there's been a tremendous pushback against critical theory, you know, in, in certain conservative quarters in the country. Well, I think the, uh, the label conservative and, and liberal is, is a very dangerous one, first of all. You know, there's, there's a truism, and, and Professor Fadel probably knows this better than I do, that, you know, there's, there's two reasons to make something illegal. One is because it's antithetical to the values of the society you live in. And the other is that it's so inherent in the values of the society you live in, it has to be forbidden. So things are either illegal because nobody does them or they're illegal because everybody does them all the time. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. But I think there, you know, and this is probably too late in, in the day to, to raise this as, as a topic, but uh, I think that there are objections to critical theory that go far beyond, you know, uh, discrimination still happens and and even discrimination is built into the system in various ways. And, uh, you know, we can we can go into what some of those objections might be. And and it goes, as you know, it goes far beyond just critical race theory now. And so I, I don't know if you if you want us to discuss that now, but we don't we don't have to discuss it now. But I think, you know, this principle of non-domination is it's really stimulating to think that, look, we can acknowledge formal equality and still, you know, um, recognize that the, the, the potential for uh, arbitrary abuses of power are present. And as a society of conscience, we should, you know, move to limit those, you know, in, 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 in legal ways. Sure. And, and from a legal point of view, I find it, I, I teach this every semester, 
you know, the, the famous case of Brown versus Board of Education and the e- almost equally infamous case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with them or if our li- listeners are, but Plessy versus Ferguson was from the 1890s and to oversimplify too greatly upheld the principle that separate but equal is acceptable from constitutional law. And Brown versus Board of Education in a, in a public school setting essentially held that separate is by definition not equal, and therefore it violates the Equal Protection Clause. One of the points on which the Plessy case turned, and, and Dr. Fado, please correct me if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong, but one of the points on which it turned was that had to do with coloreds only railroad cars. And I, I put that in the necessary scare quotes. I hope, you, I hope that's understood. And one of the points that the, the person who wrote the decision made was, well, the Equal Protection Clause was not and can never be effective in creating social equality, that the Equal Protection Clause is only and ever designed and can only possibly affect legal equality before the law. In other words, the formal equality that Dr. Fadel is, is referring to. And I think that that's the underlying theme that Brown versus the Board of Education rejected, not the legal terms, but, but the, the theme that it rejected. And I think we're seeing the, I, I hate the word progress, but the progress from that in the notion, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example, and the programs that have, have derived from that and, and various, not just racial, but various anti-discrimination laws. What we're seeing here is a real uh, societal effort to create uh, functional, uh, substantive equality more than just equal protection of the laws, but equal protection in the law, by the law. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just be careful not to equate non-domination with substantive equality. Oftentimes people view substantive equality as, you know, crudely equality of outcomes. That's not what non-domination is about. What non-domination is about is testing the law to see whether it's effective in securing the, 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 the protections that we care about, right? So for example, if we want to say that everybody is an equal citizen, and being an equal citizen means you have an equal voice in governance as manifested in the right to vote, right? Then we should be very concerned that the law actually provides us equal access to voting. So when the law is such that there's one ballot collection site in the city of Houston, for example, and one in a village of 10,000 people, then even though the law in some respects is formally equal, it's not actually full fulfilling its function of giving everybody an equal opportunity to participate as a citizen because Houston has 5 million people in it and this, and this village has 10,000. I'm, I'm thinking on Texas here. But you, you know what I'm trying to say is that what anti-domination asks us to do is to make laws that make our rights and freedoms effective, meaningful, right? Now, if somebody does, still doesn't want to vote, then you can't, you know, can't lead a, can't, you know, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink, so to speak, right? But you can remove arbitrary barriers, right? And so, recently, Florida, for example, you know, the people, the people understand this. This is the amazing thing. So there was a referendum in Florida which restored voting rights to felons. Like one way that Southern states have kept African Americans from voting 
is by prohibiting felons from voting. So they restored the franchise to, to the felons, to convicted felons. But then the Florida legislature passed a law saying, oh, only if you've paid all the fines that you owe and court costs and all this other stuff, right, which is bad enough. But then they didn't even have a procedure whereby these former felons would be informed of how much they owed. So it's a real Kafka-esque situation. And you can do all this within the rubric of formal equality. So anti-domination wants to say, look, what is the consequences of these rules? Do these rules actually make the right effective or do they interfere in the exercise of the right? So it's not, I'm just saying that because I don't want people to equate anti-domination with a substantive equality kind of outcome. No, that's not what it is. It's about removing arbitrary barriers for the exercise of our rights. But we're we're wrapping up here and I want to give Professor Fadl, a last word, and I'd like to give you a last word. So, Professor Fadl, the you know, uh, there, there was much in your article that stimulated thought, but one of the most pithy, you know, paragraphs or expressions, you said a commitment to understanding Islamic law as based on an ethic of non-domination, moreover, gives Muslims a way of engaging in legal reasoning that is motivated by egalitarianism without forwarding arguments that undermine the moral integrity of Islamic law. Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to say here is that um, if you're a morally committed Muslim, you're committed to the idea that the Prophet obviously was moral, was, has, was had a morally, had a, had, was a person of integrity, not only a person of integrity, the highest integrity, um, and that his close companions were too. But at the same time, they tolerated a degree of hierarchy and regulated it and enshrined it that we would consider repugnant, right? That's just a simple historical fact. And it, it doesn't do any good to try to deny that. So you need to have a, a legal theory, a moral theory that takes, that somehow can make sense of that. And I think anti-domination can help Muslims make sense of that by saying, yes, it's true that 7th century Arabia had relationships that we consider repugnant, slavery, for example, but is the, the Muslim community from its beginning was always actively trying to reduce the scope of this arbitrary domination in all sorts of ways, sometimes legally enforceable ways, other times in, in moral exhortation. But there is never a moral teaching to praise domination, right, to encourage it, right, to say it's a good thing to treat a fellow human being as a slave or something like that. To the contrary, the good thing is to liberate your slave and make them a free person. And that's why the jurist said that freedom is is the goal of the lawgiver, not mm, enslavement. Beautiful. And, doc, and Dr. Januzzi, uh, as a last word, I'd like you just to comment on something we read from you. And you said that equality today is undergoing a major rethinking in the post-civil rights era in the form of identity politics and the reformulation of equality into notions of equity with a parallel impetus toward breaking down the very categories of equity by breaking down the objective nature of the groups involved in favor of constructed and fluid identity. Wow. Uh, <laughs> to a large measure, I think I'm I'm repeating what Dr. Fadel is saying, uh, which which is that equity in the sense of removing the arbitrary 
barriers to equality is is certainly what's going on today. And I think that one of the things that complicates that is the 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 identitarian thought that people's experience of that is not just influenced by but term but determined by what groups they belong to. And that's a bit problematic in my mind, because all categories of human thought can be fuzzy around the edges and can contain an, an objective component, but also a subjective component. And I think that's something that has yet to be hashed out. Do think that a lot of the rhetoric that I hear around equity today does, despite Dr. Fadel's very balanced and sane approach, does focus on equality of outcome rather than uh, other forms of equality. And I also think that, and, and I guess this can be my coda, that as a lawyer, when I think of, of the ethic of non-domination, uh, with which I, which I endorse, I think it makes an awful lot of sense to me, and your article made an awful lot of sense to me, uh, but when it comes time to enshrine that in law and legal processes, well, the devil's in the detail, literally in this case, because the, the, the one gray word, as one of my students called it today, that stands out is uh, the word arbitrary. Deciding what is arbitrary and what's not and how to attack the arbitrary while preserving the necessary, well, that's, that's the problem. Mm, very, very good. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I hope that we were able to give both of you uh, opportunities to, to speak to this core issue. I mean, at Renovatio, we're trying to discuss proximate approaches to perennial questions, perennial problems, perennial ideas. I think that we we have some ways to go. This is a big one. Equality is a big one. But I, I think that uh, today certainly provided much food for thought. Uh, I would like to thank Dr. Lawrence Genuzzi and uh, Dr. Muhammad Fadl for participating in this conversation. And we look forward to uh, hosting you again soon. Thank you. Mm-hmm.